0: Do you guys experience, like, a, a, a wild relationship between, like, crying or sadness and your libido? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess let's just fucking get into it. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, all right. So, we have Mr. Sexy Swede himself on the podcast. <laughs> Chris... Uh, Chris Lovegrin?
1: Yeah, so it's actually pronounced Kristoffer Lövgren, <laughs> if you want to try that out.
0: That was my second guess, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Love, love, grin. Yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's good, man, Yeah. And do you go by Chris or Christopher? Uh, cause I know Christopher Hitchens had a thing about that. And so I'm like super sensitive to like not truncating people's names if they don't, if they don't like it.
1: Yeah. So, so I mean, back home as it were, no, nobody calls me Chris here, but, but people internationally usually
2: do that. I don't really care. So, uh, whatever floats your boat. Well, so good to have you on, man. We've been uh, enjoying the Do Explain podcast for quite some time. I've learned a hell of a lot through your conversations and I'm just like, Super stoked to get to talk to you. This is going to be fun.
0: And also learned a lot about your sound quality and stuff. Just mostly me <laughs> banging my head against the table going, how does he sound so good? How the hell is he oh, doing? Wow. Like from, from episode number one, it was, it was very impressive.
1: I, okay. I, I don't know if I would agree with that from the beginning. I mean, I, I had, a, uh, I had a, a real thing for a lot of bass. To begin with, and so not only did I try to make my, my voice sound darker, you know, by speaking deeper, um, oh. but also, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know why. I just saw some YouTube tutorial where you kind of boost up the bass and the treble, and I just wanted to do the, the least possible. I, I think it sounds better now, but but that's uh, nice to hear.
0: So, okay, yeah, so we should say you host the Do Explain podcast. How long has it been going now? Just over a year?
1: Yeah, so I think it's two years uh, coming up in October, so it's been a while now,
0: yeah. Wow. Congrats, man. Yeah. That's, uh, that's big. And so yeah, it's a philosophy podcast and it seems like you sort of explore the ideas of Karl Popper and David Deutsch, but it seems mostly focused on David Deutsch's philosophy, especially as expounded in like the beginning of infinity. Was that mm-hmm. the motivation? Like, did you read this book and go, holy shit, there's a lot of nice ideas in here. I want to start a podcast around uh, like discussing them and, and things like what, what was the original motivation?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So uh, before I do that, though, I just want to return uh, the ball on what Vaden said in the beginning there. I love your guys' podcast, too, and I have, too, learned a lot. So I'm very honored to be talking to you guys live here. It's super fun. Yeah, so um, essentially, I like many of my guests have told me, I found David Deutsch on Sam Harris's podcast. Yeah, I've, I've been a huge Sam Harris fan, uh, and uh, before that, I was a mega fan of Alan Watts. And I kind of had this tendency, and I've had my whole life to to trust authority or to delegate my thinking to other authorities. And uh, there's a lot there that we can go into later with the emotional processing stuff. But so essentially, I found found David there. I loved his line. You made three arguments there, and all of all of them were wrong. I thought that was so badass, and and I believed him. That was the thing. Cause I had up until that point thought that Sam Harris has all the answers. He has thought everything through. Nobody has shit on Sam Harris. Right. So that was very intriguing. I went to beginning of infinity actually didn't like the book the first time around. A lot of it went over my head. I don't like physics uh, much at all. So that kind of turned me off a bit. And, um, but then, then I don't remember how, but I, I listened to uh, – I think I listened to the episode with Sam Harris again. There was something intriguing there. And I went back to the book a little bit later. And then I um, – yeah, I, I really got excited about it. And the podcast was essentially just my, my way of trying to understand the ideas. So I think if you listen to the first episodes, I didn't have a good grasp of it at all. And so I just try to find these people on Twitter – I've been battling with David and Brett Hall and others uh, on Twitter, harassing them with questions, and they were nice enough to answer. And so the podcast was kind of uh, was kind of a an excuse to reach out to people that I thought was interesting that could help me clarify these things. And uh, so it essentially started like that. And now I just see it as yeah, a podcast where I explore what I think is interesting with with the worldview and epistemology of David Deutsch in the background there more than being solely about that at this point.
2: How has your um, thinking evolved? Uh, like the opinions you had about Beginning of Affinity and David Deutsch uh, say at the beginning of the podcast compared to how you think about the, those subjects now?
1: I haven't evolved at all. I've devolved since I started, <laughs> probably. No, but so <laughs> but so I, um, yes, I think from the beginning it was, it was um, mainly noticing that there was something there but I didn't really understand. didn't have the knowledge created for myself about what he was actually talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so at that point it was, it was merely a matter of, of um, what's it called? Delegating to David's authority, which Mm -hmm. is the opposite of what he wants us to learn uh, from his books. And um, but so, so I would, I would hear something and I would know that I'd heard David disagree with that, but I couldn't put that into words myself. And I would be like, okay, yeah, but, but that can't be true. Okay. Why? Well, David tweeted this and, you know, and (laughs) so now what's happened recently uh, is that I I feel like I've actually created the knowledge for myself. I have the ideas and David is no, he's no longer in the picture, Mm -hmm. uh, which he shouldn't have been from the beginning. But so so the main thing that his ideas helped me do was to shake the whole authority thing Mm -hmm. and actually learn to think and uh, speak for yourself, which Mm -hmm. is uh, extremely liberating psychologically, I think. And, uh, so I, I guess that would be the main thing. If you're looking for what I disagree with now, perhaps <laughs> with the <laughs> worldview, yeah. uh, I'm not sure if I have found that many explicit mistakes. Um, I know from chatting with David personally that we have some smaller disagreements, I think, on, for instance, the, the uh, usage of psychedelics, how useful they can be, or if they can have mm-hmm. a special place in, in, uh, psychology, for instance. But, um, yeah, so not much has changed there more than that I actually understand why the ideas are great.
0: So, like, you know, Baden and I have spent a lot of time talking about, like, EA and EA community, and that's definitely um, mm-hmm. people I think would identify as, like, being in that community. Right. Is that the same, would you say, of, like, the, you know, critical rationalist slash Deutsche community or sort of those people that are drawn to to Deutsche's work? Like, is there sort of a unified front at all?
1: Yeah, honestly, I'm, I... <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of the wrong person to ask because I don't, I don't engage much with Twitter. I I hate like discord chat groups and stuff like that. People have invited me to different forums uh, for these things. And, uh, Yeah. So I I, I wouldn't want to see myself as part of a a community more than, I mean, I share the affinity for these ideas. And I I, I know I have a lot of people like Brett Hall and Luli who I love to follow and and, uh, retweet their stuff. Yeah. I I get the feeling that there is a a fairly strong community there for sure. Yeah. So I, I, I I mean, I, I haven't read a single uh, Karl Popper book uh, from beginning to end, and right, I, 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 I would calling it. <laughs> nice, nice, having,
0: nice having
1: you on. And, uh, yeah, he's no authority <laughs> nice anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but because I felt like I've gotten the 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 meat of the epistemology from David Deutsch. I, I did write an essay mm-hmm. on on Popper and super intelligence kind of. So, mm-hmm. um, so I have read some of his stuff. But what I'm trying to say is, I I don't. I don't identify strongly with being a critical rationalist, for instance, yeah. or um, or a Deutschian, as some people say, myself included. I mean, I, I, yeah, I maybe I can be described in those terms, but I, I see it more as kind of like being described as uh, I don't know a um, Everettian or Newtonian. Like it's just, I just think this is how the world works in terms of epistemology. I don't need to identify more with that than that. You know what I mean? So, um,
2: yeah, I've been thinking about this idea of community quite a lot, actually. And I've been observing just what's happening in the EA space and seeing it kind of become very detached from the real world. And I guess I'm noticing a little bit of that too in the Deutschian space. Um, and that I find to be a little concerning, frankly. Mm. Um, particularly with like the concept of like universal explainers and, and all that. Um, let me try to concretize it a bit, um, to turn it into more of a question. What is your opinion of free will? Because obviously you're familiar with Sam's arguments. And why do you think the concepts from David Deutsch can give us some insight into this, this question? Yeah. So that's funny because I actually think that, uh,
1: you didn't push uh, the epistemological point enough on free <laughs> <pretty> Well
2: <laughs> Oh, so, great! 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 Because uh, I,
1: I heard your discussion. It was a while back now, so I don't remember yeah. all the points. But but between you and Sam, uh, Kuipers, yeah. yeah. First of all, yeah, we have to just be careful with the uh, the usual points. Like n- nobody thinks that there's something spooky uh, outside of the laws of physics. Um, the free will we're talking about here is still uh, compatible with determinism. Mm-hmm. All the normal caveats and. I think the mysta- I, I'm f- I'm fine with Sam Harris's uh, point that, as far as I understand it, if you if you watch your subjective experience, this is what Sam says is his personal contribution to this whole debate. Because okay. you, I mean, you can talk about determinism and how how it's all uh, neurons in the void or atoms in the void. And there's no room for free will there. But his point seems to be that okay, if you actually uh, look closely at your subjective experience you'll notice that there's no free will there either. You Thoughts just pop up into consciousness um, and you don't know where they come from. So in what sense are you choosing anything?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And um, I, I, I can agree with that too. I just think that he's missing the epistemological point of how he's using self and how he's using free will here. He seems to think that free will, when people say free will, and please correct me here if you if you uh think i'm wrong about that but he 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 says that yeah the, that i could have done otherwise that i consciously have some kind of ultimate veto power where i can choose stuff is that how you read him too
2: yeah yeah i think that's totally uh, accurate yeah
1: yeah and he also seems to talk about self as just the yeah what we're consciously aware of maybe the conscious self representation and i just think that that's a very narrow way to define you, I think, uh, if we get into emotional stuff later, I think a problem that people often get into is over-identifying with, yeah, the conscious tension behind your face uh, and the ideas that are expressed in words and kind of uh, neglecting all the other stuff, which is probably most of, of who you are, I would say. And uh, so that's that's one issue I have with it. And then the other issue is, it's just a point of why do we have the concept of free will to begin with? In this worldview, this epistemological from that framework, we create different concepts to solve certain problems. And so when we have an entity in an explanation as free will, I mean that that solves a problem. That's that's something that we invoke to solve a problem. So it has a purpose there. And it seems to me that what Sam Harris is doing when he's saying that, okay. It just pops up into your consciousness and you didn't choose it and you're influenced by your surroundings and your genes. You didn't choose any of these. You didn't choose your interests. I I don't see what his alternative is if he wants to explain differences in voluntary behavior between people. It seems like he's saying instead of saying, okay, Vaden chose uh, to come to the interview uh, without a shirt on today because (laughs) he has free will and he thinks that's really cool and he wants to show up his pecs and all that um that's a better explanation to me than just saying i don't even know what the alternative would be like it just happened because of determinism or his genes or fascinating yeah it's just a matter of of uh what's the purpose of the concept and as we know from from preparing epistemology if we don't have a better explanation you can't just refute something and then leave a big gap there that's not how knowledge growth works we have to have something else to jump to so even if he says well you don't choose cons- consciously choose your thoughts. I still consider it a better explanation to say that Veda and you as the creative entity, uh, you are making these choices. You are creating these thoughts. They're emanating from you. That's just a better explanation to me than, than all these environmental and genetic neuro-reductionist explanations.
2: Okay, great. So a um, couple of things I wanted to pick up on. Maybe I'll try to go in reverse order. So you had uh, – kind of ended by saying it's a bad explanation. Um, and then you also talked about how free will is a concept that we invoke to explain, explain stuff. So yeah, first, I don't think that free will is a concept we invoke. I think it's something we all feel innately. I think it's, it's kind of the default state. So someone who has never listened to Sam Harris or David Deutsch or anybody, I think comes with the idea that they can make choices. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily something we invoke. I think it's something that we, assume uncritically, first of all. Uh, Second, on the point of it being a bad explanation, well, it depends on what's being asked to be explained, right? For example, if we talk about depression, let's just focus on depression. Mm -hmm. An alternative explanation to the one that says people are depressed because they choose to be depressed invokes um, evolutionary psychology Mm -hmm. in the sense that we are evolved and there are certain traits which Um, come along for the ride sometimes, which can express themselves negatively if overexpressed. And there's also neurochemical explanations. And I don't see free will, excuse me, determinism as being really an explanation at all. Uh, But I see it as something that all explanations have to be compatible with. Um, Mm -hmm. So determinism, I don't see it as an explanation, but I don't think that quantum mechanics is an explanation to depression either. No, and so no. this move that I've been seeing, um, so this move that I've been seeing, like made by I think um, Sam Kuyper's uh, and perhaps you and your comments is that um, determinism is a bad explanation. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. everything is a four bad, differences in voluntary behavior between people. T- totally, and so I don't invoke determinism as uh, an explanation for that either. Um, but I do invoke determinism and in, say the lack of free will. Uh, when I start thinking about um, certain kinds of mental health difficulties, the fact that I can't control my thoughts, then these observations that I can't control my thoughts. Um, but but what, what do you mean by that, that you can't control your thoughts? Because um, they're
1: not random either.
2: They're not random. Um, uh, so I know that uh, Brett Hall likes to talk about yeah. our ability to, to like solve problems, right? And so let's just say you're, you're working on a really difficult problem, a math puzzle or a Sudoku or something. Um, and the solutions is not coming to you. It's just not coming to you. And then all of a sudden, boom, it comes to you, right? That feeling I think is familiar to many people who work on problems all day. They just, they don't get it. They don't get it. And then all of a sudden the lights come on and you understand. Um, you don't choose when that happens. That just happens to you. Sure. Um, if you could choose, if you could choose that, then we wouldn't, be struggling with the problem right um and you can read accounts of say uh like andrew wiles and stuff and he just talks about how like he was struggling struggling and then all of a sudden like it all clicked into place um and that happened to him and that clicking into place feeling is exactly what you notice when you're meditating um, and thoughts just arise uh, and so i don't think you can control this and if we could then we would just Solve Sudoku puzzles like robots.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> easy, yeah. You know? um, but but that's the thing. It, language is somewhat confusing here, and here I think Sam would agree. Where you are nothing separate from uh, the slew of ideas uh, and their interaction. Like th- there, there's no you surfing on the stream making these choices. In that sense, I agree with Sam. But I, I don't know. It seems like both you and Sam have a very strict uh have very strict constraints on what we can call free and what that would mean so what what happens if if sam harris is right what are the implications for because to me choices can't exist if we don't have free will Uh, i mean i'm fine to remove the free if we want to call it will but it's still uh, we're using the person as the vantage point and we're saying that the person is choosing things Um, and there is a clear, there is a clear difference in my mind between completely involuntary behavior and, uh, behavior that we, we deem to be voluntary. (laughs) Um, and so like a reflex is different from me choosing to do something consciously. And, uh, so, so I'm not, I'm just not sure. I'm still set on the whole thing that, that you keeping free will as a concept is more useful to us in explaining things than removing it. And but because what what is the alternative there? I'm not sure
2: that I got. But it's it's, it's so funny because when you say that, it's like if if I um, tell you somebody jumps off a bridge, um, yeah, and then you say, "Oh, of course I did because they have free will." That seems to me to be a non-explanation, right? Compared to something like, "Of course I did because their wife just left them, their job has disappeared, they have a history of suffering from mental." disabilities yada yada but to just say free will yeah no no is no. to not provide any information into the the question at all so i see it as like like you've heard the concept of like a, the god of the gaps where people invoke god when they can't explain say earthquakes <laughs> and volcanoes uh, right right i yeah. see it's like the free will of the gaps people can always just say free will to explain something they don't understand yeah
1: no so, so i would completely agree with you there and, and i would use to say i'm arguing against- Using determinism there and say that all those things you invoked, uh, I still think, points towards the specific ideas that the person had because of, mm-hmm. uh, of course, like, th- this is, I guess, where my my problem lies, too. I, I don't deny that we're influenced. We live in this world. I'm in a certain environment. And this is actually uh, maybe a nice segue over to evolutionary psychology later because… I, I, the way I view the body and genes is just another thing in our environment. It's just that we, we can't get out of that environment, uh, <laughs> as it stands now. But, but so environment, of course that influences us. And I don't know why, why not being able to ultimately, for, for instance, the idea of ch- you don't choose your interests. So the, the whole idea of, um, what movies you prefer and like if, his classic movie example and movies pop up and you, you couldn't choose other movies. Yeah, of course, you have the knowledge you have at any time X, but it's the, the important part here when it comes to choices is that people can always create new choices. And it's better to call them free choices because we can differentiate between when someone's being coerced or doing something that is purely a mechanical fault of the brain, for instance, where, where your arm starts flailing. Um, I just I just see that as much more useful, and I don't know why... The other discussion is that interesting, like um
2: yeah, I don't know. He, he seems to think they have moral implications, but I'm not sure sh- yeah oh yeah well the the moral implications are immediate and profound, um in the sense that like once I shed myself of this idea that people have free will, um what flooded in was compassion, um compassion not only for the historical despots that you're never going to meet but yeah compassion for the asshole at the end of the bar, who's just being a dick, like rather than I'm sorry about that, (laughs) rather than thinking they're being a dick because they choose to act this way. I see them as someone who grew up in an environment where this kind of behavior was rewarded. Perhaps they have all sorts of things going on behind the surface, which are causing them to act in a particular way. Um, And so the, the practical immediate implications are just that you start to see other people, with uh, a deeper understanding of things that you previously would have just blamed them for. Also yourself as well, not just other
0: people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and so like on the influence to the, um, by the environment thing, like whenever people invoke free will, this is like severing any kind of possibility of explanation by recourse to the environment, because now the explanation is, They freely chose to do it. Well, that is is a non
1: Not free of other influences. I mean, it just means that you can make choices with all the influences and information and knowledge that you have. It's just that you're not determined solely by those restraints. I mean, the fact that I can't go outside now and fly by flapping my arms because of the laws of physics, I don't feel like I'm any less free to do things because of that. It's just a restraint. And I feel like that's the same with everything.
2: This maybe gets to your other point about how there's a big difference between, say, involuntary uh, muscle spasms and voluntary choices like uh, deciding to go to the beach this afternoon. Right. right, right? Like, mm. I agree. Uh, and the way that I kind of think about it is through like basic computer programming. So one of like, the first things you learn when you're in like, uh, computer science is how to program if statements. So if this happens, then do this other thing. Um mm-hmm. and this is the way that we give computers the ability to choose so there's nothing spooky about choices we can program choices into Roombas and into chess bots right where if this environmental condition is met then do these kinds of actions Um and then when the program gets sufficiently complicated then we start just using anthropomorphic language like it chose to move the queen to this this spot because we don't understand all of the inner workings of the program. Similarly, this is how I view human beings. Uh, we are a super complex program, which could be written as a giant sequence of crazy if, then statements. Um, mm-hmm. And in this way, we have the ability to choose in the same way that a Roomba can choose to go left or right. But the choices that we make are always constrained by our programming. They're constrained by the repertoire of choices, which we have available to us at, at every given moment. Um, and understanding this is liberating because I can talk sensibly about the difference between voluntary and involuntary actions. And I can use the language of choice. Um, but then when I have to zoom in and really focus on like what I mean by that, um, when I want to say, explain certain like negative thought patterns and stuff, uh, then I can stop mm-hmm. using the language of choice because I know that ultimately Um, we have the same ability to choose in the way that like a Roomba does. And that's not um, constraining. That's just an understanding of how um, these kinds of systems work. And I can switch between thinking about it from a higher level of abstraction um, when that serves me. And then I can go down to the lower level of abstraction, um, talking about determinism and stuff when that serves me. But talking about free will as if we just have it, um, I think – actually is an impediment to understanding um how uh the human brain works right yeah
1: i mean it's always interesting to hear how people who have thought about a a topic a lot how they think differently from you on the topic but but so how because i am not sure i would agree with you on there being no fundamental difference between uh yeah the Roomba and the human there so what you you don't think that the knowledge-creating aspect there of being able to create something that wasn't pre-programmed is essential here at all?
2: Um, well, so isn't this the whole uh, universal computation thing, right? That we are all fundamentally bound by the Turing's rules of computation. So in that sense... We are similar to a, a Roomba. I mean, the, course- there
1: are two two types of universality that I think get mixed up. So universality of computation, that's just uh, the the baseline to be able to create knowledge. And then you need the explanatory universality that we have in our creative program, which is something different. So, I mean, you can be uh, computationally universal without being able to uh, be explanatorily universal.
2: Totally. So there are absolutely differences between the program of a Roomba and the program of a person. No no doubt. Um, <laughs> but all Turing machines are deterministic. Um, and that seems to be a point that is not emphasized nearly enough in the beginning of infinity or fabric of reality that at, as soon as you say the word computation, you're talking about a deterministic system um, because you just have a tape that reads symbols and moves in accordance with the, the symbols, right? Yep. And so your question about is epistemology relevant? Well, it's definitely relevant when we're talking about the difference between people and Roombas, but I don't think it's relevant when we're talking about whether human beings do or do not have free will. Um, I think that we're just starting to conflate the categories um, there.
1: Yeah, no, so I guess the last thing I would say on that, because I, I, I'm not sure maybe we have uh, some differing intuitions there too, but I, I mean, I agree with most of what you say. I just think that determinism, the way I see it now, I, I think it might have been Brett Hall who said that to me. It's just a way of saying what is possible within the laws of physics. And if you believe the, the parallel universes uh, theory as well, then uh, all of them happens, right? So it's it's not a matter of saying that everything started from point A and then everything just moves forward in time like clockwork. Determinism is just saying, yeah, what choices are possible, totally. and then free will, he would say, is uh, useful
2: to keep in there to explain why people do certain things. But if if I can just interrupt just ever so slightly on that point, because um, that's another, I think meme, which is unhelpful. So um, often the debate is framed as if it's the free will people on one side and the determinist people on the other side. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't view myself as a determinist in the sense of thinking about determinism all the time as an explanation for stuff, um, which is, Mm -hmm. I think the, I don't want to say straw man, but perhaps the, um, the slight misunderstanding of the other camp, because it isn't as if quote determinists are running around everywhere saying determinism is the explanation for things in the same way that atheists aren't running around saying that atheism is an explanation for things. They're just saying that this one concept, God or free will doesn't actually make much sense. Um, so to attack the concept of free will is not to start invoking determinism as an explanation for everything, as I think Brett Hall and Sam Kuypers tend to um, imply that like determinism is a non-explanation. Well, I I agree. It isn't an explanation. It's not something I tend to invoke, except when um, trying to get rid of the unhelpful concept of free will. Um, So, Mm. it's more that I see the concept of free will as an impediment to understanding things, because we can always say, uh, the reason somebody did something is because they freely chose to do it. Well, fine. That's almost the information content of a tautology. It's just, it's a, it's, it's nothing, right? Um, I don't say the reason people chose to do stuff is because of determinism. I have to think about what they did and then try to explain what they did using all the information I have available about the particular situation. Um, but I would never invoke determinism as an explanation for anything. And I don't actually know any determinist who would. Um, so I just want to clear that up because I think that that's a uh, bit of a misconception, which is um, circulated.
1: Right. But would you be sympathetic to uh, some of the people in that camp? Like maybe, c- cause I would say Sam Harris and maybe Robert Sapolsky, who's another strong proponent for the against free will uh, perspective. To me, they, they do seem to exclude the fact that there's something going on. Like there's something between the input and the output. they seem to be saying that this can all be explained by look at all these outside factors and all these, how the neurons are firing the hormones and they seem to neglect the information and the top down influence there. I think that's the main thing I have an issue with.
2: Sapolsky is a great example because his book behave is an excellent, um, attempt to explain human behavior. Um, and, he doesn't just fill the pages with people did this because of determinism, (laughs) right? He, he goes from the, what we know about the instance before, I think the example he uses is like killing Hitler or something, um, to like a hundred thousand years, years before. And he's bringing all this information to play, uh, into bear to try to explain the, um, decision that somebody made. So it's a perfect example of a smart author, not invoking determinism. Um, he doesn't talk about, uh, the stuff that David Deutsch talks about, and that's that's great. Uh, he's in a different area of um, research, and so he thinks about the world differently than David Deutsch does. And their books mm-hmm. complement each other quite quite nicely, I, I think. But um, but it's I don't see him neglecting stuff. I see him as just focusing on the phenomenon from a different uh, scientific background.
1: Okay, I mean, I I've only uh, read through it kind of. Uh, shallowly and i haven't read it's a long book but i i really like robert sapolsky actually yeah. i think he's a very captivating speaker and he's funny as hell too and that beard but um God, beard yeah so and the beard <laughs> one thing to yeah one
0: thing to note so just to use the, the language of deutsche and explanations and everything you know so sapolsky will examine things like poverty depression Uh, and, like, the relationships thereof and um, aggression, relationships between aggression, testosterone, etc. And he can use he can use neurophysiology, biology, to start explaining why, for example, why uh, criminals will often have or, like, people sentenced to, like, violent crimes will have higher levels of certain hormones running, like, uh, active in their body at the time of the attack and stuff, right? So, So he can look at statistical patterns of behavior in society and start exploring them with, you know, various arguments coming from uh, biology. And so this now, this is now an explanation for like why um, certain people, you know, given that they grew up in certain situations and stuff might be more likely to commit Um, some crime or steal something or be at risk of depression right or suicide or something like this and so he's offering an explanation and uh, I don't see Deutsch or sort of Deutschian style reasoning offering a good counter explanation right so so Sapolsky is able to account for like a lot of this kinds of behavior and under what circumstances it occurs etc but there's no sort of counter explanation there so I would say you know you know, Popperians and Deutschlands love to talk about. You have one explanation, you gotta, and then you gotta criticize it and try and generate a better explanation that accounts for the same things or is tighter and explains more, et cetera. And just saying that people are like creative and can do anything they want because they're universal explainers. Um, and obviously that's a bit of a, a bit of a straw man, right? But, but, it's yeah, often, so, yeah. but no, that was going to
1: be my counter, but sometimes yeah. it's
0: actually, but <laughs> sometimes, actually, I mean, actually sometimes it's not a straw man. Like I have seen basically those exact statements on Twitter, right? Times, right. Like we don't need to pay attention to social sciences, etc. But anyway, what, what I'm yeah, trying to get yeah. at is like Polsky is offering, he's, he's explaining phenomena yeah. that we see. Right. And so now but, you have to try to yeah. come up with like. A better explanation than
2: that and at least address the content of his and sam harris's case like that's the one thing that i see also happening in the conversation is people go from sam harris to david deutsch and then think Uh that they don't have to address the case that sam harris made well you do if if you want to say something about how we have free will that's amazing we can talk in terms of epistemology but part of doing your due diligence is also addressing all of the strong arguments that were made by right. by Sam Harris and Robert Sapolsky, which I see to be just ignored by people who go from Sam to Deutsch and then all of a sudden think we get free will out of some yeah. program that we don't understand. But so, there's like yeah. there's nothing in Deutsche yeah, epistemology
0: yeah. that would help you explain why certain people are more likely to be depressed than other people are more more susceptible to like PTSD after coming home from war, etc. Right? Whereas like no,
1: Sapolsky but has but I think there. Yeah, yeah. But but because it sounds to me, as far as I understand it, I mean, it's not my hobby horse by any stretch, but it's like, it sounds like the reductionist argument that the, the only thing that Deutsch is uh, turning against here is that, you know, the, the famous, uh, I, I think I heard him say sometime that if we're going to explain why someone walked on the moon, we, we have to invoke different ideas that has to be the level of explanation not why the neurochemistry expresses itself in a certain way or why the atoms move a certain way that that we can predict in that way but we cannot explain and so i also think the idea of top down causality in the sense that now now like i said i don't know what studies or or what robert Sapolsky is claiming exactly there but if you if you say that all these people who commit this certain behavior has raised levels of cortisol That's a core or testosterone or whatever. Um, I mean, that's correlation. That's not causation. We know that. So, I mean, I I think often it's neglected uh, from that side that what I say now in terms uh, of what the meaning is of the words and the sound waves that I'm making, I would say what affects you and your behavior now is not, it has to express itself at the physical level. Your brains are reacting, but the, the difference between if I'm saying this or if I'm, I'm saying really mean things about you guys, uh, it's the information contained within there. It's the abstract thing that has the uh, causality here in terms of explanation, in terms of prediction, it's always going to be bottom up. But I, I think it's often neglected that the information is the salient part when we're talking about describing people's behaviors. And then, of course, I would say the physiology can influence and create sensations and Maybe it's much harder if you have 10 times the testosterone. Maybe that's much harder to refrain from cheating or, or things like that. But I think, uh, ultimately, since people can forego that behavior, even when they have more testosterone, the, the salience is still in terms of explanation, uh, at the, the higher level, uh, of the ideas. But, um, yeah, I don't know if, um,
2: If we're going to get any further on that. Yeah, maybe um, one last little comment just to uh, recommend the uh, (laughs) the listeners to a particular video, and then we should pivot. Um, But So Robert Sapolsky has an amazing lecture on depression on YouTube, which I Mm -hmm. recommend everybody listen to because it's just a stunning lecture. Um, And what he says is that if you only think about depression at the level of neuropharmacology – and neurotransmitters, mm-hmm. you're going to be missing half of, at least half of the story. Like you can't just yeah. look at it in terms of drugs. You have to also look at it holistically. Um, he recognizes that you have to zoom out and look at the level of ideas as well. You have to see, is this person's life fulfilling? Um, is their relationship, uh, satisfying? Are mm-hmm. they working at a job that they enjoy? Um, and this is the level of ideas. Uh, this is the very much non-reductionist. Um, mm-hmm. and so I completely agree with you. Uh, and I think that there's a bit of a trap when people talk about free will, because I think that the opposite is to be reductionist and look only at the level of like atoms in the void mm-hmm. when that's not the case at all. Um, you can very much do away with the notion of free will and also keep the notion of ideas and memes and like. This is one. Other, okay, so, sorry, I said one last thing, but I want to say one one more <laughs> last thing. And like I, when I think about um, how we don't have free will, I often think in terms of Deutsch, um, mm. because he talks about memetic transfer. Right? He talks mm. about how ideas have causal influence over human beings. So he talks about um, it's not that a human chose to tell a joke; it's that the joke caused itself to be told. Right? Mm. Um, if we just invoked the spread of ideas by talking about humans free choice then we don't have any traction into understanding how certain ideas spread but if we instead move the uh, locus of causality away from the human being and we say it's not that humans freely chose to tell a joke but it's that the joke caused human beings to tell it um it knowledge causes itself to be instantiated and stay that way um what we're doing is we are uh, taking a piece of human behavior, which used to be explained via free will and explaining it in a more interesting and fundamental way. Um, and this is just yet another example of how, once you get rid of this concept of free will, you can start to make traction on all sorts of interesting problems. Um, and the very notion of memes and the notion of, uh, knowledge having causal influence is Mm -hmm. to get rid of, uh, the free will of the gaps there. Um, and so it's just interesting that Deutsch and some of his um, fans uh, think that his work gives us free will. When I think that his work requires us to get rid of the notion of free will.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think he would, and I can't speak for him, but, but I think he would um, say that it, it's mainly a matter of in, in static societies where there are antirational memes that can be more, causal in that sense, in a, in a deterministic sense. And that I, I think that he has written explicitly about how certain people um, take the creativity and the person out of the whole picture and say that memes just are, are the controlling factor instead of the genes. And it's just as deterministic. So, so I, I'm not sure that he would uh, agree with that. But but I, w- I I guess I would end on saying that, yeah, you know what? It's your guys' podcast. I love you <laughs> both. And fuck fuck free will. You got me. We
2: can but, name the episode that. Uh, do, I'm good with that, you, man. You've entered the Lions Den where Ben and I, like, I perfectly agree, which is super unfair, because we should find a subject that Ben and I disagree about.
1: No, so. no, no. I'm fine with that. <laughs> oh, no, that's fun, man.
0: Something I do want to bring up, but I mean trying to infer from the podcast. Um, what are your politics? Like you hide your cards decently well. I know you've had some <laughs> libertarian leaning folks onto the podcast but you sort of did a good oh, job right. of just like yeah. questioning them and letting them expound on their on their ideas and i haven't heard you like endorse either various like political policies or parties or yeah where, where, yeah, where would you say you, you land on the political spectrum
1: i mean i, I I'm super right wing so I'm close to, yeah, Nazi town. Yeah, no, no, but so, yeah, cut that out and have that as the intro, <laughs> right? The first part of the podcast before the music. Yeah. No, but so, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm what uh, I think, Vade, and I think you coined the term uh, apolitically blissful or something like that.
2: Blissfully I,
1: I, I heard, yeah blissfully apolitical. I heard that and I thought, yeah man, that's <laughs> I I actually I don't care much. I um I don't have a strong opinion there. I think that I'm uh leaning towards the idea that that once again epistemologically I think I see the problems with having a, a central authority. Uh I mean, if you draw the parallel to justificationism how knowledge can't work like that. Okay. So I'm sympathetic towards the Popperian uh yeah, the system isn't about who should rule; it's about how to remove and correct uh, bad policies and, and leaders without violence. Right. Um, but more than that, honestly, I, I couldn't care less about specific policy, and yeah, I just stay out of that. Uh, it's completely.
2: It's, it's something I've noticed over the um, the last eighteen months because I used to follow the like the daily news cycle mm-hmm. much more closely than I have over the, like just during COVID times. And it's so nice because now I'm spending my time studying things that have like permanence that aren't going to just disappear mm-hmm. in the next um mm. two weeks. Because like I used to be so up to date with like what Kamala Harris said and who's running in the primaries. And it's like, <laughs> right. who the fuck cares about any of that anymore? It's all gone. Mm-hmm. And, um and so it's one of the nice things I find about studying like philosophy and yeah. uh, history, because the work you put in, you get to keep it for the rest of your life, right? Um, mm. And so I, I'm a big fan of just stepping back from the the political news cycle and just yeah. starting to learn about other things because, like, how much of that stuff do you actually hold on to in three weeks? Like, it's all just disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I'm very much uh, sympathetic to what you just said. And that's part yeah. of the um, the blissful, apolitical uh, nature, which, which uh, I'm becoming more and more of a fan of.
0: How often do you consume the news? Thing?
2: So I, I consume it like socially. So typically my signal is if I'm out and like two or three people all reference the same thing, mm. then it's, it's a story, which is in the culture enough that I should be aware of it. So I use, it's similar with pop culture. Like I tend not to say study Beyonce, but I'm going to pay close <laughs> attention when people talk about her at bars and things, because these mm. are the ideas that are in currency. Right. And so I let the world tell me what I need to focus on based on what um, people are talking about.
1: Uh, yeah, that's good. I think I heard Tim Ferriss make that point a while back where he said several years ago, he said something like, yeah, if it's important enough, you'll hear it from your friends. Yeah. So he just said he had a zero news diet and he would get all the information secondhand like that. And I, yeah. I think I took that to
2: heart. So it that, is, that's it's brilliant. like, it's trusting the um, meme complex, right? Like yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever people talk about it, especially if you hear the same thing, from two people in your life who are in very mm-hmm. different social circles. Mm. So if mm. like, if people in far away social circles tell you the same thing, um, pop culture, news, whatever, then I take that, in, like especially at podcast recommendations too. If I hear like mm. two people mm-hmm. recommend a new podcast, I'm like, Oh, okay. I need to know what that is. Um, and that's been my, my strategy. Uh, and it works decently well because like, there's just so much news that you don't care about and it just like works you up. And then it's just fucking gone in the next news cycle and it's like why did i just get so invested into this, you know <laughs> yeah and people get so fucking
1: invested yeah. identity wise oh into it too and you can ruin a family dinner or a family party yeah. or a new date i had a I had a friend recently actually who met a girl and uh they got along great and he, he was really into her and then they got into politics one time and then they never spoke again mm-hmm. so i mean it's just so unnecessary man
2: so like um what do you think about critical rationalism as an identity?
1: I as mean, bollocks, just like any other yeah. uh, idea-driven identity like that, where you cling too much.
2: I guess I kind of asked that because a year ago I would have said I was a critical rationalist, uh, mm. and that was before I met a bunch of critical rationalists. And I love, <laughs> I and, and that's not that's not an insult. Sorry, that sounded more of an insult that I meant. Um, it's more just like a as a silly little mental block. I just don't identify myself as say an EA or a CR or a LMNOP and mm. I do that just so that when there's a group of people all saying the same thing, I can use the fact that I don't identify as a means of starting to try to come up with ideas that are outside of that. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, I know I resonate with that because I, I, I don't know if it was on the podcast on my podcast, but mm. I had a discussion with Charlie Youngheim. It mm. uh, was a buddy of mine uh, about this very thing that I, I hate I wouldn't call myself a critical rationalist. I don't see the point. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it adds to the conversation too. It just seems like you, you yeah, like you just makes it, it is kind of similar to saying that, you know, I'm a vegan or I'm a leftist or whatever it is that it it sounds like clinging to me. And Mm -hmm. what I've come to the conclusion lately of why I resonated so strongly with. The ideas from from David Deutsch was um, I I just care about living a a fun, nice, uh, free, uh, free of suffering life as much as possible. And uh, even if it wasn't intended to be a psychological self-help book, I think that's mainly the role it's played for me, Mm -hmm. especially lately.
0: So so you guys say, yeah, you don't like to associate yourself with labels, but I'm assuming you like to associate yourself with just communities of people. Um, like communities of people of friends. is like one of the most important things in my life. And so that I think is like very important community in that sense. So do you guys just mean like a certain political label that sort of indicates like how you should be thinking about certain issues?
2: Do you have a label for your group of friends? Like yeah, fucking you, all yeah, I was just
1: going to say the A yeah. team or what do you yeah, call yeah, yourself?
2: Because, because I, I find it fairly easy to have communities and groups without having to label myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I guess the um, Chris brought up veganism, and you do identify as a vegan, only or roughly, do you...
0: yeah. Because like I don't, um, I don't mis- like I'll eat honey, and like I'll eat like you know, it, I'm I'm only vegan to try and avoid the suffering. So if you know if I like if chickens are raised really well or something, they're, you know I'd be okay with eating it. So there's lots of boundary cases where I'm fine. It's just yeah. as a shorthand mm-hmm. when I'm talking to people, it's easier to be like ah, like you know what this is, and I'm not going to spend 15 minutes telling you.
2: Yeah, yeah, of yeah, course. That's, okay, that's a that's a perfect way. Okay, that's a perfect way to explain the difference. So it's the difference between saying you're a vegan as just a quick way to communicate versus identifying as a vegan to the core of your being. Yeah. Right where yeah you meet people at parties who <laughs> declare themselves to be vegans and then spend the next I'm the like vegan. Hello. yeah the next like hundred minutes just talking at you and then just talking near you about <laughs> veganism. Um, and that's kind of the difference. It's hmm. like. I think you can use a label as a shorthand, but then I think if you couple that with a growing community who are all using the label, and then it starts to become a bit of a movement, and now people don't talk about being interested in effective altruism, but they talk about being EAs, right? That's like the common um, way to describe yeah. it. Then yeah. I think the label has started to switch from being a shorthand communication tool and started to become associated with like your entire being nice. yeah. um and and that's yeah. where i think it becomes a, a problem yeah
1: definitely and i mean when, when you're discussing ideas with someone the way i used to uh i usually visualize it, it's just that we're we're throwing out ideas into the arena of of ideas right and then we're uh, battling it out shaping them together mm-hmm. and then we can take with us what we want from that and hopefully we've both uh learned something from it perhaps mm-hmm. but it, it, that's the danger when the ideas you throw a bit of yourself in the ring and you're under attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's um, uh, adjacent to what you said there before about how criticism can suck. Yep. But I think it it, it, it only sucks if it's either uh, feels like a criticism of you as a person and your value, um, or if it's unwanted criticism. I think there, there's some uh concept of criticism scheduling Mm. that i'm not very familiar with but the the basic idea seemed to be that yeah criticism is great but only when when it's the right time for it if i'm trying to write something develop an idea and then you come in and criticize it before i've asked for it maybe i couldn't develop it fully in that direction and because of your criticism i now choose to go in your direction and i i would have gotten somewhere Great if I just had let it develop a little more on my own before. Oh that's yeah, it's not black and white, but but I think identity is it's never good to to keep identity oh, that's, uh, that's, in the
2: discussion of ideas. I don't think. Yeah, uh, maybe that's it. too hard of a yeah. line, but no, dude, it was it's such a nice insight because I hadn't associated the idea that like okay I, let me float this past you guys, see if you see if you what you think of this. That criticism sucks. More and more, as it becomes closer and closer to your identity, um, and so if if I say to get to the grocery store, you have to turn right then left, and someone's like, "Oh, actually, it's left then right." That's a criticism that doesn't matter really at all because, like, that was just one idea that I got wrong. But if I'm criticized on, say, like how I am a father or how I am a um, a friend, then Depending on the criticism, like obviously, uh, sometimes you absolutely need to hear this, but it starts to hurt much, much more. Um, and so, like if you take something like libertarianism, uh, it is definitely a set of ideas. But at least in practice, all the libertarians I've met seem to identify as being a libertarian to the core of their very being. Um, <laughs> right. And and I don't know why that is the case, but I definitely have noticed that is the case. And so, it's not as if you're just criticizing the ideas of libertarianism because of how deeply they've sunk into the hearts of those who hold these ideas. Now you're criticizing their entire um, personhood, uh, and so I'm kind of taking your comment and maybe going a bit further with it than, than warranted. But uh, there is something interesting about the suckiness of criticism increasing as you get yeah. closer and closer to like your core identity. Yeah. I yeah. guess uh, I think there's, there's well, I like also
0: that. I think an additional layer though with the source of the criticism can matter a great deal. Right, so if you have me criticizing a libertarian. It might not go so well if um, he or she is, like, someone who, like, identifies as a libertarian. But if their friend, who is also a libertarian, Mm. starts talking about, like, you know, know, we mostly agree about this stuff. We know we're both good people. But this one idea, I've been having some trouble with it recently. And, like, here's kind of why I think it's wrong. I think it's easier to hear and receive that criticism than it is to hear it from me in that yeah. in that case when we probably like don't align much mm. at all on like those sort of political values so like you know i you know the source of the idea probably shouldn't matter but i think just subjectively it does end up mattering you know yeah. it's easier to hear criticism from close friends from family we yeah. like share a lot with um, than just like someone who
1: D- did you say it's easier from Easier from family and friends. Yeah, I was gonna yeah.
2: say because it can go the <laughs>
1: other way around, right? Because I mean, if my mom, if my mom were to say, "Oh, I don't like your sweater," like I don't give a shit about that. But if a hot girl that I've never met before yeah. says that, I'm crushed, dude. No, I'm yeah. not crushed. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: You know
0: what I mean? Well, it depends on the sweater too. Right. Like, if it's a pretty boss yeah. sweater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. awesome. it's part of my identity, man. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I think uh, it didn't. Joseph Agassi gave a talk for the Carl Popper Society. And I think someone asked him, like, how how do you think about giving criticism or like, how do we solve the problem that ideas can really only be improved via criticism? But people in general do not handle criticism very well. And I think yep. Agassi basically mm. threw up his hands and said, this is a very difficult problem. <laughs> I'm like, I do not yeah. know how to solve it. Um, And there's just something, Mm -hmm. maybe it's a cultural issue, right? You have to like generate an entire culture of criticism and it's like more and more okay for like everyone's ideas to be criticized.
1: Two things I wanted to add to that. One is, I mean, do you two feel like after coming across uh, Popperian epistemology and and, uh, getting acquainted with this tradition of criticism in a different way, has that changed your relationship to criticism in a substantial way? Or do you feel like you're still... Maybe it depends on the topic, as we said before, but but do you, do you see a big difference in practice for yourselves?
0: Yeah, so I certainly do. It's still hard to receive criticism in real time, but I think I'm like maybe better at digesting it. One interesting thing i mm-hmm. found that um, after like reading uh, a lot of Popper and being influenced by those ideas and like um, letting them percolate and then eventually taking them on board was that I find I'm much uh, more ready to like, put idea like especially in writing, like I'll I'll write something and be much more ready to just like throw it out in public. Yeah. And just sort of let like Mm. so this hat so I didn't write anything publicly for like a long time. And then basically like last Christmas I just started writing like pieces. Um and would like post things on the EA forum that like people might not like and stuff. And I was much it was like psychologically easier for me to just say, okay, like I have this idea now. And if I have this idea, probably other people have similar ideas. And the best way, so either, you know, I write up an idea and I put it out there and I change people's minds, or I'm terribly wrong and then I have my mind changed and it won't be like a fun process. But it's now easier for me to just say, like, if I hold like this strong opinion about something, I should probably put it out there, like for the good of the public conversation, right? Like, as like mm-hmm. to try and avoid um, sort of like preference falsification stuff where like some people think, one thing, but no one actually wants to say it publicly. So, anyway, it's been easier for me, I think, to take like slightly controversial takes um, or like have controversial opinions on things and then actually write it up and like let people see it than it was otherwise. Cause I mm-hmm. feel like slightly more distance from my ideas now, right? Like, it's just like ideas I have and maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong. wrong and the only way to figure it out really is to just like throw it out there and see what happens. Um, so, that, that's been one interesting side effect for me, I think, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know.
2: Um it has completely changed the way I do research for example. Uh so mm. like another th- thing that I think is underemphasized is just soft skills. So it sounds super flabby and kind of like qualitative yeah. and social sciencey, but but I think that you can actually develop a bunch of soft skills which really will improve collaboration potential. Um because to be criticized and to get criticism you have to work with people and you have to work closely with people. Um and so subtle things like on Slack, telling jokes and just being like a uh, easygoing guy. Um, mm-hmm. It's not as if I was just a like a, <laughs> a stoic stick in the mud before I read Popper and then I changed. But it's more that <laughs> I had these certain qualities of being like a jokey dude. And then I realized that this is actually serving a role. And the role it's serving is um, hopefully um, allowing people to want to collaborate with you a bit more um, and then get into kinds of discussions like Ben and I have on the podcast all the time um, and form relationships. And then once you form a relationship that's built upon like mutual um, respect and mutual criticism, like Ben and I have a great relationship because the whole relationship is built on like trying to improve each other through mutual criticism. But I think part of that is enabled through soft skills, through being able to tell jokes in the middle of it, through being able to just like, have a fucking laugh at yourself and at don't take yourself so seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but, so these are things that I was kind of doing by accident and upon reading Popper, I was like, Oh, actually there's a role for this. And, uh, the biologist PB Medwar, um, who is, um, you're just making up names at this point. No, 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 no. So, so, um, Richard Dawkins, uh, fell into Karl Popper through P.B. Medwar. So he's a famous biologist um, who is a Popperian and made some fundamental um, insights into biology. Is Medawar? Uh, or no? M- M-E-D-A-W... I just wikipedia it. Sir Peter Brian Medawar was a British biologist and writer who's worked <laughs> on graph rejection and the discovery of... that. Doesn't matter. Um, but I bring him up because uh, if you read about what people said about him, they said that he was just like the life of the party. He was a really mm. social affable guy um, who had a giant network of collaborators. And through this made some fundamental insights in biology. Um, and I, I think about that because like criticism sucks. Um, but if you're just like a super nice guy in between, then that's going to allow you to give and receive much more of it, you know? Um, and, and these yeah. kinds of qualities, I think um, are of huge practical import into actually trying to do like real research and produce real new knowledge because it this is the only way we can produce knowledge um and yeah. you have to kind of set up your life such that it's a joy to be criticized and to receive criticism and and that i think comes through the careful application of a lot of these soft skills which are often um, not included in the conversation
0: so don't be an asshole Is the the takeaway,
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and it's just a nicer way to live.
2: Fucking mean, totally, you, cause, man.
1: Because I want to, I wanted to say, let's see if I can structure it for myself. First, of all, I, I want to compliment you two on because I, I've thought repeatedly listening to you that you are exceptionally good at this. Because both of you. Uh, you, you, you often say the same thing uh, when someone has said something that maybe it's not the way you thought about it. And then you say, interesting, and then you <laughs> you keep arguing around <laughs> it. So I, I can genuinely hear that you're living, you know, you're walking the walk, uh, not yeah, just talking the talk. So that, that's inspirational. But then the, the, the fact that when, if we go back to the, the idea of identifying, clinging to your ideas, mm-hmm. um, that has tangible physiological effects. In the sense that, and I, I used to have this much more before. But if you get criticized about something you're sensitive about, and you you cling to that, and th- then it feels like you are physically under attack, mm-hmm. your body might produce the same fight flight response, sympathetic nervous system response, as if you were actually in danger <laughs> for your life. And I mean that that to me, firstly, is is a great testament to how ideas. Um, are important in, in costing things, uh, mm-hmm. speaking about what we spoke about before, but also, I mean, we're all in a relationship, right? You are, I mean, you're getting uh, a kid soon, Vayner, right? So are you married?
2: Uh, just got married
1: two weeks ago. Boom. <laughs> oh, congratulations, man. <laughs> yeah, Hell thanks. yeah. That's yeah, great. So thanks now. for the invitation. <laughs> yeah. And Ben, you have a girlfriend too, right? I, do, yeah. I mean, isn't that the perfect, I don't know how it is for you, but, but that's something I've struggled with so much when it comes mm-hmm. to, uh, Seeing the context and understanding what, what is the, the purpose of, of conversing here? Cause yeah. I feel like oftentimes I have these conversations with people like you and we think it's fun. I mean, on my own podcast, as long as it's in good faith, I don't like it when people are uh, just want to be dicks, but yeah. in good faith, I love hearing the words. Oh, I disagree with you or that can't be the case. Like that's fun. Totally. That's exciting. Right. We get to wrestle and then I get to e- either I, test my ideas and they hold up and i'm like okay i've tried them they're still good or you show me something better and i leave with better ideas it's a Mm -hmm. win-win but 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 when it comes to going out and conversing with my wife oftentimes it's not about it's not about the semantic content and reaching the the conclusions it's more a matter of of the vibe of feeling seen Mm -hmm. or heard and I, i i struggle sometimes with You know, oh, but what she's saying now is not factually true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what she's wanting from this conversation is to be emotionally validated. And so do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Mm -hmm. And I'm leaning more and more towards wanting to be happy. (laughs) Totally, man. It's a
2: good skill to have, right? Yeah, and something that I think about in those circumstances too is um, just how difficult communication is. And so very often I will just remember that the person I'm speaking to, um, and myself as well, we're both struggling to communicate the ideas that are inside our heads right now. Um, Mm -hmm. and often people will say something and if it is factually incorrect or whatever, that's not really the point because the thing that they're saying is just a, it's an approximation of what's in in their head. Mm. And, um, and especially with like conversations with your partner and stuff, because I don't know, um, Vaden, can you stop forgetting to do the uh, the dishes? Isn't actually about the dishes. It's more about me being a more present partner at home, say. Yes. Um, and and realizing that it's the it's not about the dishes. It's about something deeper. But that deeper thing is actually like super hard to express. Mm. And so all yeah. you can do is express it through sometimes certain comments about the dishes and that kind of thing. Um, that's well put yeah yeah that's that's one way that i've I got around this is it's, it isn't as if like our partners aren't interested in facts and aren't interested in being rational of course they are it's just no, that no. the 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 thing that they're trying to express is much more of a feeling than say expressing something on wikipedia so the the very thing that they're trying to express <laughs> is a more difficult thing to communicate and that's why we have to kind of try to seep through what is being said to try to See the the underlying thing that's trying to be expressed, I guess. Yeah.
0: So trying to tally the number of times you've done the dishes that week is not the way to go. <laughs> that, that's the right <laughs> approach. <of course>, yeah. <laughs> well, actually,
2: <laughs> yeah, But but
1: I mean, I, I I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I, I I know these things, and I'm fairly good at them. But I yeah. still get get caught up sometimes, you know.
0: At the at the same time, yeah. though, there is a role for like trying to drill down a bit and clarify what's going on. So right. So if your partner says, like, I need you to do the dishes more you might realize like, okay, there's something deeper at play here. There's just like, there's, you know, maybe she's unsatisfied with like how busy I've been recently or something. But then it's, it, you know, I think you want to try and bridge that gap somehow and say that otherwise you're just kind of guessing what yeah. the, the lower, what the actual deeper issue is like using the surface level clues. And that itself can like run into a lot of problems because, you know, maybe you were just supposed to do the fucking dishes and then all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you're taking a no. week off from work. And she's, she's like, yeah, isn't week, that the
1: most, and the most the most condescending? That's like the most condescending thing when when you are like, "Okay, baby, what's what, yeah, what is really weird. wrong?" And she's like, "What
2: the fuck are you saying? You're supposed to do the dishes." You know, can it just be about what I'm saying? But so, what about you? What are some practical things that you got out of reading um, Deutsch Popper, uh, etc. Yes,
1: yeah, so I think I'm going to preface that by by just saying that I feel like there. are, two kind of distinct ways of viewing uh, the mind Mm -hmm. and one is uh, often espoused in like the meditation circles where they talk kind of about the the monkey mind and how you know so much of your thoughts is just repetitive and random and you should just you know uh, learn to detach from it see it and it it won't affect you as much Mm -hmm. and i think that evolutionary psychology might might influence that view a bit like how we're Wired to always worry and, and, uh, uh, look out for the bad stuff and, and, and stuff like that. And then I think there's the other view of mind, which I tend more towards. And I'm making a hard distinction here. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are nuanced, uh, uh, middle grounds here, but where the mind, where, where, where your thoughts make sense and your emotions make sense to the, to, to the extent that Yeah, if you have a repetitive thing going on in your head all the time, that's just that's not just how the mind is, quote unquote. There's something there that's not being addressed and you can get rid of that. Um, And so. So with that said, yeah, so so I lean more towards that. And and hence, I think it's kind of um, can be useful to go back uh, in your in your history, your biography and look at seminal moments and how you grew up and. Uh, to try to understand yourself and certain parts of yourself um, to to become a more healthy, happy uh, human being, and so I'm sure there are ways to actually just look at like the thought patterns right now, like the Cbt um, yeah, this is how I'm thinking right now, fuck the past more or less, we just focus on thinking better now but but I think they're missing something I think uh, uh, there's something to be said for going back so. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to say that the last two years, I've spent a lot of time doing exactly this, trying to understand myself, different parts of myself. And so the fundamental thing that I uh, have discovered happened to me when I was younger was that my relationship with my father, and my father is great, and we've talked about all these things, and and, and we're good now, but he, he had a very harsh way uh, of he was always right in his mind and there was no room for other views or other people's emotions. So if you didn't think what he thought, you were wrong
2: mm-hmm.
1: on any particular point. So both me and my brother, we learned early on. Um, and this is the theory I have that if you come to your, to someone that you look up to, I mean, as a kid, you don't know much about the world. You don't know much about you. You get everything from other people and you look up to your parents more than anyone else. So, if your parents constantly, uh, instilling in you that, okay, if I come with an idea and you shoot it down because it's not what you like, or if you say that, Oh, uh, for instance, my dad loved sailing and he wanted me to be, be into sailing. I hated sailing. And so he would show me that that wasn't a good thing that I didn't like that. And I liked something else that was wrong. And so eventually you learn that you are wrong and. And so, and that's a horrible, horrible category error, but I think it's fairly common. And if it's rooted deeply enough, it can wreak a lot of havoc mm-hmm. because then you stop trying. And so I've always looked to other people to tell me what to think, to tell me what to do. I remember being 16 years old or something like that and uh, going to get clothes for myself. My mom had bought most of my clothes most of my life and i had to ask my classmates i was like i i can you come and shop with me i have no i don't know what i like i don't have any opinions Mm -hmm. and the same with group projects in school i remember in high school i wanted someone else to tell me what to do and take charge because i Mm don't so so i think that's why um i clang on to alan watts my first authority everything he said was right Mm -hmm. and so if you were to ask me what do you think of topic x I would have to say, well, I haven't heard Alan Watts talk about that, so I don't know. Let me go and see what he says. And then I would change to Sam Harris. I would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then I would change to Deutsch, do the same mistake. But I think what really, really resonated with me in Deutsch's work, and I think this is something I've re- realized re- recently, is that he gave me the permission and showed me um, how that's a fundamental mistake. You have to think for yourself Everyone is fallible. There is no authority. And uh, I think that, that took me two years of the podcast almost, uh, parallel with a lot of emotional work and stuff like that, to really hash that out. And now finally feel like I'm thinking for myself. And it's the most freeing thing I can imagine. Um, so I, I think that's why I resonated so strongly with that perspective. That was a fucking beautiful
2: answer, man.
0: Dude, that was that threw <laughs> our was, answers out oh, of the water profoundly. Yeah, I have that's, nothing to say except that was
2: good. a gorgeous and so honest um yeah. account. And like <laughs> it was so it was so insightful because um the way that you explained it made a lot of pieces click into place because it's like you learn to to not trust your own mind, I guess, right? Because every idea you have yep. is being I'm told that it's, it's wrong and that it's not yeah. that we are all fallible. It's that you personally are fallible. <laughs> and yeah, that, yeah um, exactly. And, and especially when you're young and looking for um, guidance. And, and so like mm-hmm. I did the same thing and I still do the same thing of going from person to person um, and studying them. And I can even like remember the sequence of thinkers that I obsessed about. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, Saying that uh, you're in my intellectual history seems to be quite similar because we both mm. did this going from person to person. But I I see it as a as something I'm going to continue to do, not something that I wish I was uh, wish I didn't do. And I guess I heard in your comments that you kind of you framed it as if it was like a weakness, but I think it's it's not. I think it's like it's a strength and it's it's a really powerful mode of self-improvement and of, of learning. I think the part of it, because
1: of course, part of it for me was just fun and just being curious. And that's, that's what I hear you describe here. So I think the only bad part about it was the authority delegating my own thinking because of feeling like there was something wrong with my own ability to think. That I think is always a bad thing. And you can have the obsessing over a person purely from interest I think, uh, and then I don't see any issue with it at all. Let me put it like this. So if you've been, uh, in a, in a big trauma, like, uh, you've been raped or abused or, uh, your parents hit you or something like that. It's so easy to point a finger and say that was really damaging. That was a, mm. that was awful. And I get why I would be messed up, but I think. And you don't you don't at the same time, you don't want to get stuck in a victim mentality where you continually define yourself by your past and you can't move forward and things like that. But then then I think there's another the other end of the spectrum where people like myself who've had a from the outside uh looking in, it looks like a really good childhood, it's fine, no major things there. Uh my parents loved me, they wanted the best for me. But but you can end up you you can have, be really unlucky in that you make bad interpretations, and maybe you have some genetic predispositions to be uh, I don't know more more stressed out, more susceptible to certain things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to it's harder than to maybe acknowledge that things have been really tough for you. And I think that's that's one of the most important things have been for me to actually acknowledge that shit. I uh, certain things really turned out badly for me. And it wasn't until I acknowledged that and, and actually went into that suffering, um, uh, that a lot of it started to, to loosen up. And I don't know about you, two, I'd be curious to hear how, cause it's one thing to think that you can't think, but it's also one thing to add to that, that it's bad to show emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as men, maybe it's, it's uh, more common for us that we learn that, but that was also a thing that I got instilled in me early and, that shit sticks with you, man.
2: Mm.
1: For very emotional creatures, especially when you're younger, a lot of a lot of things are emotionally overwhelming. And I'm very persuaded that the psychosomaticity, like the influence on on the body, if you don't get to express emotion, that energy, that physiology has to something has to happen with that. And if you don't get to express it, yeah, it'll come back to bite you. And that's that's something I've I've noticed a lot been very very surprised about how how big of an influence that has been
0: yeah so one um brings us to talking about a couple episodes of your podcast like what's remarkable about your podcast is a lot of it is dedicated towards like rigorous philosophy and thinking through problems but then you also have the side of it that's like dealing with emotionality and like working through issues and stuff and um Hmm. you had a couple episodes in particular with matt goldenberg i think um, yeah. That, uh, where you, you sort of worked through a lot of these issues, um, like from your past in real time, like recorded it and just put it out there. And um, mm. I got to say, man, like that, especially that first one, I think, the, fir- the first half of your episode or the first episode uh, with Matt, that hit me hard listening to that. Like it was very impressive. Like you, you know, you cried a few times. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> as a podcast host, you, ha- you would have the power to remove that if you wanted to, but you didn't, right? Which right. just says something about, like, how sort of honest you wanted that portrayal to be. And so I'm just mm. curious, one, about the decision to, like, make those kind of things a part of your podcast um, and, like, why you chose to do mm-hmm. that. And two, if being, like, that honest and that open, especially in those episodes, was difficult at all? Like, did you, like, did that open up some vulnerabilities? Did you feel... Uh, scared to do that. Like, I, I don't know if I could do that. Like, um, I'm typically pretty okay with crying. Um, <laughs> it's like you cry at the drop of a hat. But um, yeah, there was something like, just incredibly brave about that. So anyway, so I would encourage people to listen to that, those episodes. It's like quite something, Some one of the most unique podcast episodes I've ever heard in my life, <laughs> uh, by far. But two, yeah, I'm just wow. wondering if you could talk about that experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. It's very kind words, and I, I know that I actually uh, I uh, got notified about you, Ben, the first time when you retweeted this. I think this episode, mm. and said something about it. That's how I found your your guys's podcast. Okay, um, it, it, okay. so it's it's essentially been my biggest interest uh, the last years to do this for for purely wanting to feel better reasons okay. because I have a lot of uh, physical uh, issues that I suspect are brought on by emotional issues to begin with. Um, And so so I've just been deeply into that and I've seen such great results that I just felt like, yeah, I've resonated more and more with that. And I think, especially in circles that like to listen to podcasts such as ours, that can tend to be fairly heady. And like you said, you know, stringent philosophy and arguing and, and it's um I kinda want to give, and it might sound a little uh, grandiose perhaps, but I, I kinda want to lead the way a bit in since I've been so repressed in my own emotion and seen how damaging that can be. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I'm getting confident and comfortable in my own skin, and I, I've learned that all the parts of me are okay. And there's nothing wrong with me. I can be sad. I can be sensitive. And so I felt like I, I kind of want to instill that in other people as well by showing mm-hmm. them that, okay, if this guy who I don't know how I come across, but I, I would assume I come across as uh, fairly well-spoken, confident. And, um, yeah, if he can do that, if he can cry, maybe it's okay for me to cry. Mm-hmm. Um sounds silly maybe but but i yeah i think it's so important and so so part of it was just wanting to use matt selfishly because i think matt is a wizard and he's amazing at what he does Mm -hmm. and so the podcast was a way for me to get a free consultation and i truly want to feel better so uh, i wanted to just give it a, a a wholehearted go there and then i just felt yeah like i said i just felt like hey um what better way to show myself in my own brain as well, that it's okay to cry and to do it in a setting where the pressure is on. Mm-hmm. And I have all these thoughts about, are you going to come across as disingenuous? Are people going to judge you for this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I just felt like it was the right decision. And I, I, I've gotten proof of that, uh, just by the comments you made here, Ben, uh, the, yeah, it's been overwhelmingly positive feedback and, um, yeah, I'm
2: really happy I did it and, and I enjoyed doing it too. I think it's um it's so important because typically when people make podcasts, like when we make podcasts when when you just when you present yourself to the public, you put on a face, a face of yeah um strength. You put on a face of almost like um all the human issues that, you know, the listener has, you don't have any of those, right? (laughs) Yeah. But we're all fucking human beings and we can talk about heady philosophy stuff, but it's important to talk about like real stuff too, so that we don't give this impression that we're just like some robots from Mars only talking about philosophy all all the time because this is like, we're real people and we struggle with our shit. And like, I think that one of the things that's so freeing about pop, pairing epistemology is is that you you start to trust your own um intuitions a bit more and know how to deal with them and you deal with them by putting them out in the public sphere and having conversations about it and Mm -hmm. once you realize you can do that about personal stuff too and it's all the same um and then this like you just drop this face of having to perform and it's just an honest conversation like like, mm. we haven't met in person, but I feel like we're just buddies talking at a bar right now. And that's, like, an yeah, awesome yeah. feeling, you know, because because we're not trying to present to the world any particular way. We're just three human beings who are interested in some things and, and trying to talk through it. And, and, like, I don't like this intellectual pretension because I think it gives off the impression that other people somehow can't do this, you know, that you have to be this, yeah. like this stoic robot philosopher guy when that's not the case at all. You just be like a human being talking yeah. about things you're interested in and encouraging others to do the same. So just a huge, huge, like yeah. a completely, like, I really respect the, what you just said and the whole project, man, it's, it's super valuable. And I think the world needs much, much more of it. Like we could just start crying right now. If the three of you just <laughs> yeah. to have a little cry session, but, um, mean, but just huge props, man. Like mad but, respect for that. That's really awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, you guys are the, like the nicest guys. <laughs> ever. you're just showering with me with compliments but but no I, I resonate strongly with that because, and, and that's why I was so relieved to stop editing because mm-hmm. that's exactly what i had been feeling before that mm. I'm still trying to be yeah to live up to this um, lack that I have that I feel inside mm. me that I'm not worthy that I'm not good enough and I have to prove myself somehow and that never ends because it's a fundamental mistake Like there's no way to heal that except on the emotional level. And, hmm. uh, and yeah, it's just about the fun of it. Right. I, I think totally. that's why we, we vibe so well because fun and then being really interested in, in these intricate ideas and, and wrestling yeah. intellectually and stuff. that combo is just unbeatable. It's so great. Totally. And, totally. uh, so uh, yeah, it, but okay. So let me turn it around on you a little bit. Mm. So we'll get to the crying session, but <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, h- How often do you cry? When was the last time you had a good cry, like a real cry? Vaden, you can go first.
2: This is an easy one. <laughs> this is unfair um, because oh, I just got married right. two weeks ago. Huh. Um, that doesn't I, dude, count, dude. I was crying like a baby up there. I like I didn't okay. think I was gonna. But okay, um, so you,
1: you don't cry, cry uh,
2: regularly. No, like, so on a regular basis, no. I just, well, I saw cry in movies quite a bunch. The yeah, the one yeah. movie that the one movie that always fucking gets me is. Um, and I can't actually watch it anymore. Is, is the Goofy movie? Do you ever remember watching the Goofy movie? Like the like, animated character oh, no. Goofy <laughs> is like a Looney Tunes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The animated character Goofy. Is like, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That guy. So there's like a scene in that movie where like him and his kid are fighting and like Goofy's inside the car and his kid's inside the house and he's like trying to open this can of like beans or whatever and it's just they're fighting and I just go to tears in that scene. Wow. Um, so I can't I can't watch certain movies, but uh, but I wouldn't say that crying is uh, a regular part of my routine. No,
1: right. So how about you, yeah. Ben?
0: Um, actually, Fading's wedding also gives me an out. I started crying during his best man speech um, because uh-huh. his best man was crying so much, and it was like That's the sweet. most adorable thing ever. So I started crying during. That. <laughs> That's sweet. I think everyone was crying. <laughs> I don't think there was a dry voice.
1: I was crying. I wasn't even <laughs> hearing. <it>. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, um, I think the last, yeah, like mo- movies and stuff, I often cry. Um, yeah, can't really go into the details, but some, sub- so just something yeah, happened yeah. to my girlfriend, something, yeah, sort of bad. Happened, okay. Bad, bad yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, so that, that so real? that just, yeah, that hit hard. So, um, yeah, like pretty, probably in the last, uh, I think like right yeah. sort of beginning of COVID ish. Um, so yeah, that, so that's the mm. thing. Um, but so yeah, that yeah. hit me really hard. But like Vaden, I would say I don't, I don't cry regularly. Like I, I don't, uh, I can't just yeah. like sit down and cry. Yeah. I don't know, if, I don't know if anyone can do no. that, but I certainly can't do that. Um, so it's got to be some yeah, external
2: um, influence. What about after the social media yeah, yeah. episodes?
0: <laughs> yeah, when I had to take. <laughs> or when Vaden dissuaded me from being EA. Uh, I was like, no, i just, i lost kidding. my <laughs> identity. I can no longer. I that That was a cheap shot.
1: So to contrast that, I cried a lot. (laughs) I've cried a lot these these last two years. I wouldn't be surprised if I've clogged maybe a good thirty hours of of pure crying, (laughs) including like snot coming out of your nose, convulsing, sobbing. This is
0: in the past year, past
1: two years, years, I would say. But so what? I'm and and I'm not sure if I'm. Uh, maybe a bit in the extreme because I really uh, learned that emotion was bad. And so so I maybe uh, stored more than most people. But I'm curious to hear what you think, because this is the thing. I don't have any good explanations here for how these things work, but I'm extremely, extremely curious. And what has shocked me the most during this period has been, because we think we know who we are and we know most about ourselves. And it's like, yeah, I don't have any repressed anger or, or, or repressed emotion. I, I don't know if repression is something that it's debated in psychology, but I don't know what else to call it. Uh, things that I'm not aware about, but th- th- that's still there. But that's the definition of something being unconscious, that you have no idea it's there. And so I've just again and again been so surprised um, by the physiological response Where I can get, and and the way I see it now, and I don't know if it makes any sense, but it's that somehow it can get stored in the body. Emotions can get stored, and memories can get stored in a way where uh, there are different models. I know one model, for instance, says that a way to suppress uh, emotional expression is through bodily tension. Hmm. So... If you don't, if you've learned culturally that a certain emotion, it's not okay to feel that emotion. One way to suppress that when it comes up is to, yeah, tense a part of your body and that will stop the emotion, but the tension will stay there. It has to be this. It's literally like a physical shield shielding you off from that. Mm-hmm. And another theory, which is the theory I think is the best one for what anxiety is, is that anxiety is exactly this. Anxiety is something that Kicks on as a suppress suppressing core emotion that 's trying to come up, so every time you feel anxious, you are feeling something else, sad, scared, but you you, you don 't want to feel that, and so this is coming in as a cork, mm-hmm. trying to push it down and as someone who has suffered from anxiety disorder, panic disorder for many, many years, quite severely actually mm-hmm. i that 's the only theory that has worked for me to to get rid of anxiety. Um, so I'm biased here, but I also think it makes sense. But so, so for instance, how would you describe what happens when I get a manual adjustment? Let's say I'm super tense in my hips, mm-hmm. and then I do a certain uh, breathing exercise, and I, I massage them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I get from nowhere – I'm not thinking about this before – I get a really strong emotional memory from when I was younger – and I get a strong, strong emotion, and I can just start s- screaming or, or crying or laughing hysterically. It's just th- – there's something to the idea that it's stored. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how to explain it well, but I've had so many experiences that are – looks like witchcraft, literally. But, but the body keeps the score. There's a book that's called that about trauma and stuff. And I very much believe that's to be the case. What do you guys think?
2: So fascinating. I have so many thoughts. So um, (laughs) first, uh, I've been reading a bit of, um, oh, I'm going to blank on the name. Marie Kondo. No, no, no. Uh, um, Temple Grandin, Temple Grandin, Temple Grandin. Um, And she has a really fascinating book about animals. And in the book, she makes a case that um, once an animal is scared of something, they Mm -hmm. can almost never, they can never lose that fear. Um, And so she actually makes a really strong, like statement of impossibility that once you terrify an animal, you can't, they can't unlearn that because it's mm. kind of stored in their entire physiology where mm. if like, I think one example she uses is of, uh, so there are, I think it was a horse that was scared of a black hat. Um, and they, <laughs> really uh, some, something happened when it was young to terrify this horse of a black hat. And they played with it. They tried like a black box. They tried a red hat. Nothing would freak this horse out. But if he showed the horse, A black hat it would just tense up it would start going into fight-or-flight mode and it it couldn't lose this um so i think there's like something very deep about what you just said because i think it spans humans and animals um and i think that it makes sense because our body stores all sorts of information um like if you have amnesia if you like lose your memory you can still remember how to ride a bicycle uh, because bicycle writing is something which is not stored in our conscious uh, memory but it's stored like in our body um mm-hmm. and like or even here's a better example touch typing um most people can touch type but i think few people could list off where all the keys are if you ask them to do it on a like a whiteboard um, because that knowledge that information is stored in your fiber in your in your uh, in your body um mm-hmm. and so having a traumatic experience in your past um and you have some like anxiety response um, even if you forget the conscious reason that you had that anxiety response, I think the anxiety response can have some permanence and you can still, your body just tenses up and goes into that, uh, mode for certain triggers, which may not even consciously, um, register, but unconsciously yeah. they, they do. So I wonder, cause you're talking about it as if it's a problem and I don't know if, if Crying is a problem um, it, unless it's causing you oh. anxiety or unease, but crying itself is, it's okay. Um, it's-
1: so, so yeah. So let me clarify that because mm-hmm. I would, I, I think I would be a strongest proponent for crying being uh, extremely healing and extremely necessary. Awesome. So, okay, cool, so, cool. so the crying uh, in my worldview is cathartic. D- oh, definitely. And, and w- mm-hmm. what, how I would describe the last two years for myself is that I've accumulated and accrued this deep deep well of unexpressed grief and anger and and stuff like that and it feels like it's such it's real tangible inexplicit problem solving when i sob in the right context it feels like i've literally emptied out a part of this well and now i feel like i'm at the point where the well is extremely shallow because Mm. I, i don't know if you have the experience of Getting triggered sometimes. You, you have an extremely, uh, <laughs> oversellers response to something that shouldn't be that big of a deal. And that to me is some kind of indication that you're invoking a lot <laughs> in that well, uh, for something that, that, that shouldn't be a big deal. And you can get rid of that. You can completely get rid of that. And, and I feel like I'm, a, I can't even, I can't even overstate how much of a different person I am, hmm. uh, today. Uh, if you compare me three three years ago, hmm. um, or or even longer than that, so, so yeah, so so I mean, it, it's um, I don't know how it sounds so unscientific to say that there's a deep well of grief stored in you somehow, but I that's exactly Dude, how it feels. I'm yeah. Sorry, no,
2: finish your thought. I, I and no, no,
1: and sorry. I I I'm I'm with a guy called Douglas Deterran, who has um, I think it's called Bioemotive Framework or something. I think that's where I got it, this whole idea how crying is so seminal and so important to to get rid of these things. And I combine that with a lot of different things. But that uh combined with other physical releases and stuff like that, it's just I don't know if it's for everyone. I don't know if it's a universal thing where everyone is storing emotion. I mean, some people might just be really good at expressing emotion to begin with, and they might not have this. But I think it's it's more prevalent than people think. Mm-hmm. And If you are interested, I could share the craziest experience I had with this, which happened like a few days ago. I had, when I was, let's see, uh, 19 years old, perhaps, I was um, on my way to kind of uh, burn out physically for for several reasons. So I was already in a bad place physiologically. I was on the edge of fight or flight all the time already. Mm -hmm. But then I had an experience where I smoked way too much cannabis with my then girlfriend. And... People think, oh, cannabis, like that, that's not a b- bad thing. Like that, okay, you get a little, uh, anxious and paranoid and then it's, then it's over, right? But so we smoked way too much and I didn't know, I'd never heard of a panic attack. I didn't know what that was. Mm. And I was in a very like macho, anti-emotional, uh, state where I had to be cool, you know, crying wasn't an option at all. And so, so I got, I had a, panic response and i had a three hour long panic attack mm, um, Jesus! and this is where my theory is i have no idea how it, how horrible it is to be sexually abused or or be in a war or stuff like that but your body panic is as bad as it can be mm-hmm. and like you can't get worse than that so uh, uh, a three hour panic attack is horrible no matter what mm-hmm. the reason for it is and so after that i just um i never talked to anyone I developed all these physical illnesses. I developed panic uh, disorder and all those things. And so recently I've tried to work with this uh, thing because my theory is that my body kind of physically, you know, you tense all the stress musculature when that happens. Mm -hmm. And I see it as your nervous system kind of as a string, just tightening, tightening, tightening Mm -hmm. really hard and being on high alert. And I think I never really got out of that again. It didn't go back. To normal after that. And so uh without saying how I invoked it, <laughs> I used some some tools to invoke this. But I I managed to get back into that state without looking for this specific thing. Sorry, the panic
2: state? You got back to the yeah, panic. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Like I, I didn't look for this particular um
2: oh, it just kind of occurred.
1: Yeah, so that's why I think it's even more uh interesting and, and objectively valuable because I wasn't searching for this particular memory. But so I just got lodged in (laughs) to, and it sounds ridiculous, but for a a full hour, I had like contractions in my stomach where I would dry heave like crazy. And apparently my my then girlfriend told me that after this experience, I had thrown up for like three hours. I don't remember any of that. And so I started doing that. And then I started screaming, no! 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 Help! 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 No! 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 And non-stop. It didn't stop, and I wasn't doing this like consciously. Speaking of free will, yeah, this was not me. This didn't feel like me. Yeah, and then and then I also would just scream on the top of my lungs. I would scream into like a pillow or something, but it felt good. You know what I mean? It felt right. And second time. So
0: when you're repeating this experience, it felt good.
1: Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, the way I interpret that is this: this was just waiting somehow stored in my body for for a safe enough environment to be able to actually unload what I wanted to do in that moment ten years ago, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was just after that I was just uh, it felt like I had lost forty pounds.
2: Can you revisit that emotion, that panic attack, that memory now with greater ease than you could before? you approached it the second time? Like, is it easier to think about after this experience?
1: Absolutely. I don't feel bad about it at all. And I I remember I used, I don't like cannabis. I don't like uh, smoking weed or anything like that, but Mm -hmm. just the smell of it would would almost give me a panic attack. So, so, so it it was just such a powerful physical experience that really cemented to me that it it can get stuck in your body. And you, you, yeah.
0: I was, (laughs) I was going to say, um, do you guys, maybe <laughs> inappropriate for the podcast, do you guys experience the, like a, a a wild relationship between like crying or sadness and your libido? Like, <laughs> like for me, like if you're crying or really upset about something, it's like your body is distracted for like, if it like once, like I, like, I had an <laughs> ex-girlfriend who broke up with me and like, um, and, uh, it was weird. We, we, we like, Only got we we broke up for like a week or something and then we got back together. But that week I was so devastated, I'm just like crying all the time. I'm just like can't in my myself. My body is just like so distracted. And then as soon as that was that period was over, it was like it's like my libido had to catch up it was just insane so and that, that is my uh,
2: I can definitely relate yeah, yeah yeah nothing honestly nothing makes me uh, nothing makes me hornier than sobbing yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's better
0: if you're you know, having sex while you're crying
2: oh, Usually it's so I'm great. crying then
0: she starts crying I mean, then
2: we both just start crying and
0: leave the bedroom in shame yeah <laughs> 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 That's awesome.
2: Well, dude, this was an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: We're really waiting on you to be to be like a huge podcast to get really big, and then we can just ride your coattails into fame. So, we're just
1: thank uh, you, you know, both for the kind keep words. Keep growing. On that. It was great to persuade you on free will.
2: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, dude. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.